mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, local law enforcement officers will join in today's Special Olympics Torch Run, part of the special send-off for more than two dozen Hancock County athletes who will be participating in the Ohio Summer Games next week. Also this morning, one quarter to one half of the U.S. workforce could be automated by the end of this decade. How can you be one of those who leverages smart technology instead of being replaced by it? And in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, a perfect gift for car-loving dads. A book from the Smithsonian chronicles the history of driving and how society has evolved around the automobile. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, June 15th, 2023. I don't know if you saw this uh, story. It was uh, all over my social media feed yesterday and uh, popped up on my Google News feed it was on the uh, Newswire. Big, apparently this is big news, um, which is absolutely not a surprise. Bud Light, no longer the top-selling beer in the United States. Yep. Uh, Nielsen data shows that uh, Bud Light was overtaken in the month of May uh, as uh, during the uh, four-week period that ended on June 3rd, uh, let's see here, Bud Light, which previously held the top spot for more than two decades, fell to 7.3% of all U.S. sales. You know, the number one beer, this was what, the, the, the fact that Bud Light is not number one anymore did not surprise me given everything that's happened over the past several weeks, and you don't need me to rehash that whole uh, controversy. But what did surprise me in this report, the new number one beer in America is a Mexican beer, Modelo Especial, uh, with 8.4% of U.S. retail sales. So, I don't know, what does that say? Um, So, Bud Light previously held the top spot for more than two decades um, Anheuser-Busch's uh, brand dropped in sales after a recent boycott by consumers over a promotional post by trans uh, by transgender influencer. Yada 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 yada. You, like I said, you know the uh, controversy and you know what it's all about. Not a surprise the Bud Light fell, but the new number one beer in America is a Mexican brew. So that is a bit of a surprise. Last night. The Republicans knocked off the Democrats in the annual congressional baseball game. Uh, it was 16-6 to 6 was the uh, final, so not even close. You know, I, I did not know this, but apparently baseball is not the only game between the parties in Congress. They, have, uh, they do other sports as well. The, the congressional baseball game, I think, is the oldest. Dates all the way back to the early part of the 20th century. But they do other sports as well. For example, uh, apparently there was a a congressional soccer match that was held this week as well. And um, I think the uh, Republicans uh, actually won that one as well. I did not, I don't have the final score. Yeah, it says uh, Republicans won that one as well. But uh, there was a rather interesting moment at the end, at the conclusion of the congressional soccer match this week, Dan Crenshaw is a Republican out of Texas. He's a former Navy SEAL who lost his right eye in the war in Afghanistan. Um, very famously lost his uh, right eye. He has a, uh, a glass eye. Uh, and a lot of times he'll wear an eye patch, but he does have a glass eye. So, so at the end of the game, while celebrating with his team after... Uh, his win, Representative Crenshaw jokingly popped out his glass eye and tried to give it to the referees. (laughs) Uh, The Republican team believed that the refs were making bad calls, and and so Congressman Crenshaw popped out his glass eye and said, uh, uh, the the refs have two eyeballs, but they don't use them, so I'm going to give them one of mine. Hey, man. Man, that is uh... <laughs> now. I you know this because I mentioned it on the uh, program a number of times. I am a uh, youth soccer referee myself, and uh, I have had some confrontations <laughs> with 
with with players and fans and and so on uh, over supposed bad calls. I think anyone who officiates any sport has had those uh, moments. But I can honestly say that I have never <laughs> had anyone pop out a glass eye and try to give it to me. That's taking it to an extreme. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> so anyway, there you go. Some of the uh, mo- other uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Now, this I thought was uh, very interesting. It, it was definitely eyebrow-raising uh, to me. Uh, we call dogs man's best friend. And really, we should call them kids' best friends because dog and a kid, there's just nothing better than just than watching a dog and a child interact with each other. And it has been shown, studies have proven this, that dogs can decrease the severity of mental health issues, even asthma, eczema, and, and other conditions in children. But now there is new evidence that suggests that while children can benefit from those relationships, dogs, not so much. As a matter of fact, these relationships between Kids and dogs are unhealthy for the dog. A new survey of over 21,000 pet owners found that children had a detrimental impact on dogs and that uh, uh, houses that make more money per year have higher instances of dog diseases. The more children or time that owners dedicate to their children likely leads to less time with The dogs. As the number of children in a household increased, the health of dogs deteriorated. To combat these negative outcomes, experts recommend that dog owners make sure that their pooches have a thriving social life with other canines outside the home to keep those health challenges at bay. So, it's kind of interesting. It's great for the kids, maybe not so much for your dog. Really stop to think about that, but like so. Um, another interesting story that I saw on the newswire again kind of raised an eyebrow for me. Uh, the the government is now warning that Americans should not send checks through the mail. Check fraud has been on the rise since the pandemic, with stimulus checks becoming major targets for scammers who are monitoring mail through the U.S. Postal Service to cash in on your hard-earned money. Uh, sophisticated uh, check fraud schemes have resulted in 680,000 reports of check fraud last year, compared to about half that in 2021. So the number of check fraud incidents uh, has almost doubled in just the past year. And again, while government relief checks are few and far between these days with the pandemic winding down, government agencies are encouraging Americans to be mindful of sending and receiving checks in the mail. Now, we've long known you should not send cash through the U.S. Postal Service, right? Um, That, I think, we were all taught when we were younger. It's one of the first things that we're told. Don't send cash in the mail. Don't send it. Well, now you can't send checks in the mail either. Um, or you're not supposed to. They say beware of uh, of doing that. So increasingly, wonder what are we sending in the mail? You know what I mean? It's, that is not good news for the postal service. I don't think. Uh, do you still send checks in the mail? I don't. I I can't remember the last time. Uh, well, I can't remember the last time I wrote a check, much less sent one in the mail. But. Uh, I know some people do. Be careful before you do that. That's the advice. Wow. Uh, (laughs) It's not good news for the Postal Service. They're not going to have anything to do here before too long. Uh, This has been very much in the news. We were talking about it just yesterday, talking about uh, limiting or restricting teenagers' access to social media. Truth be told, we could all stand to use social media a little less. And now a new study out of Iowa State University is quantifying that uh, bit, that bit of advice. Uh, their researchers in this uh, new study find 
that limiting social media use to a half hour a day is good for your mental health. And again, we're not just talking about kids here. We're talking about all of us. Researchers say 230 college students were part of this study. They cut back on their social media use. Didn't eliminate it, just cut back to a half hour a day. And over the course of two weeks, the two weeks of this study, these uh, students scored lower for anxiety, depression, loneliness, and fear of missing out. That FOMO uh, sensation, I guess. Students also reported more positive emotions and a brighter outlook on life. Participants also said that they slept better and were more productive. I, and, and that is not necessarily a big shocker. Gee, if you're not on social media six or seven hours a day, you're more productive. Go figure. But all the rest of it is uh, pretty substantial, too. So, again, it's not eliminating social media, just cutting back on it to a half hour a day. Although that would be pretty tough for some people, I would imagine. Just a half hour a day. You think about cumulatively how much time you spend just mindlessly scrolling through social media. Just think about how much better off you could be without it. Um, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, humanity survived for centuries upon centuries before social media. It only stands to reason we could do just fine without it now, don't you think? And uh, lastly, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, Father's Day, right around the corner now. And the ice cream company Blue Bunny wants to reward one particular dad in a big way. To promote its soft scoopables ice cream, Blue Bunny is looking for the softest dad in America. <laughs> if, uh, if your dad or a father figure you know really has a soft side, you can nominate him at softestdad.com between Wednesday, June 14th and July 6th. So the contest continues past Father's Day, past 4th of July to uh, July 6th. Uh, Ten finalists will be chosen, each receiving a summer's worth of Blue Bunny soft ice cream. But uh, beyond that, the public will get to vote on the final 10, and one winner will be chosen to win the ultimate prize, a year's supply of Blue Bunny soft ice cream, along with a throne customizable by dear old dad to have all the bells and whistles, a value of $15,000. I can imagine a $15,000 chair, uh, built-in massager, white noise speakers, and even a freezer compartment to help store all of, all of that ice cream. Uh, so you can nominate your dad or a dad you know, softestdad.com. <laughs> Whole lot better than a tie. There you go. Uh, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Sunny skies for much of the day, but clouds will move in later. A high around 80. Showers and storms tonight, low in the mid-50s. The Seneca County Sheriff's Office says a Tiffin man is facing sex charges involving a minor after a search of the man's residence. The Sheriff's Office executed the search warrant at the residence of the 43-year-old, and the search revealed evidence consistent with pandering sexually-oriented material involving a minor, an allegation received from the Ohio Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Sheriff Fred Stevens says the collaboration with other law enforcement agencies throughout Seneca County, including state and federal task forces, was instrumental in the success of this investigation. Get more on the website. The Ohio Ballot Board has voted to tweak language in a statewide ballot proposal in August, making the measure's title clearer and also correcting an inaccuracy regarding how the proposal would affect signature gathering. The Ohio Supreme Court ordered the board to reconvene after finding its previous wording misleading. It stopped short of making additional changes requested by opponents of Issue 1, which calls for raising the threshold for passing future constitutional amendments from a simple majority to 60 percent. The outcome could affect a measure protecting abortion rights that is in the works for November. I'm Tracy Townsend. 
Yesterday was Flag Day, and the city of Finley took to its social media to remind people why Finley is called Flag City USA. The city posted on its Facebook page explaining that designating Finley as Flag City USA began in the 60s and was the inspiration of Finley resident John B. Cook. As a member of the Sons of the American Revolution, Cook believed in the value of flying the American flag and went door-to-door in town asking residents and businesses alike to fly a flag on Flag Day, June 14, 1968. Finley was then officially declared Flag City USA on May 7th, 1974 by a House Joint Resolution. Get more on the website. A new study has found that the Buckeye State is more fun than the average state. According to Wallet Hub, the Buckeye State ranks 13. The list was created to find which states offered the greatest variety and most cost-effective options for enjoyment. A few things that made our state stick out, amusement parks and casinos. I'm Tracy Townsend. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. So a big event happening later today in town. Local law enforcement officers are going to be joining in with uh, the Special Olympics Torch Run. Part of a special send-off, if you will, for more than two dozen Hancock County athletes who will be participating in the Ohio Summer Games next week. And joining us from uh, Blanchard Valley Center, Kelly Grisham and Nadine Weininger. Thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We appreciate it. Good morning. Thank you for having us. First, I want to quick say this is Melanie Williams. Oh, I'm sorry, Melanie. Uh, <laughs> my, my apologies. I'm just reading from my script here and I'm she not even paying attention. She's the Special Olympics coordinator, so she's the queen of all of this. So, uh, first of all, uh, let's talk about the uh, torch run. This is happening uh, today and this torch is... Or tomorrow. Yes. Tomorrow. tomorrow. I'm sorry. Tomorrow. Yes. Man, I am just all <laughs> over the place here. Okay. Um, let me start over. Uh, the uh, Special Olympics Torch Run happening tomorrow. Uh, give us all of the details on this. So it is um, with the law enforcement and the athletes with Special Olympics Hancock County. Yeah. We will meet at the University of Finley, the Arch area. Okay. We'll run from the University of Finley down Main Street. We will turn on Sandusky Street and end up at Blanchard Valley Center. This is actually a uh, national partnership between the Special Olympics and uh, law enforcement enforcement. nationwide. So how cool is this uh, to, uh, you know, for the Special Olympians and and to, you know, to highlight this uh, within the entire, involve the entire community, goes right through downtown and the the whole thing, so. It is, and the athletes love it. I mean, the excitement and the send-off for summer games. Mm -hmm. They work hard all year on keeping and conditioning and and running and being ready for this. It's not an easy run for them. Just like any athlete. Yes, exactly. Um, So uh, once the, you get to the end of the uh, torch run, then uh, a lot of things going on there at the uh, center. Yes, we have, um, we have activities set up. We'll have a bounce house with a slide. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, we will grill some hot dogs and, and have some food. Yeah. Um, yard games, a DJ, just some time to, one, ask questions about any of the sports that we offer, what Blanchard Valley Center does, um, just to have fun and get ready for the send-off. And the entire community, uh, welcome to come, come on out. Yep. And no charge. You cheer just, them on yes. and all of yep. that. We mentioned more than two dozen, I think it's what, 30 athletes? 30 athletes. That are uh, going to be a part of uh, that this year. and. And talk a little bit about the uh, spring games uh, that'll be happening, like we said, next week, right? I right. didn't get that right. right? Yeah, right. Next week. So, so summer <laughs> games. So the summer yeah. games are at OSU. Mm-hmm. We take, um, I take 30 athletes and 17 volunteers to help um, keep our delegation in line. But we will yeah. compete um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We return Sunday night. And uh, what events will the uh, local athletes be participating in? So we have bowling. Mm -hmm. um, We have um, track and field. They will have shot put, mini javelin throw, um, softball throw, relay races. Um, This is our first year without a pentathlon, but we've had pentathlons in the past. And and how how are the... uh, athletes that go to the games the, at the state level uh, selected? Is that it is uh, The athlete has to um, come to practice every week, mm-hmm. have to um, maintain their, we call it a code of conduct, but they have to practice, they have to want to go. Right. Um, and then it's just a matter of I put in how many I would like to take, and the yeah. state says this is how many you get. And okay. we always work really hard Fair to include true. everyone. So. Um, this is, I mean, everybody's familiar with the uh, Special Olympics. Uh, talk about what this means for uh, the DD community 
at large. It's highlighting their abilities. Yeah. They're more than just a person with a disability. So it's getting to um, – we our programs with Special Olympics, it's amazing. How many athletes do we have overall? We have 180 athletes overall. Wow. Our yeah. bowling program, I'd say, is our largest. It has um, – we have – 89 bowlers that meet every Monday and we start at 10 a.m. in the morning and we bowl till um, about five is when we finish up. But wow. it's on a rotation basis. So everybody gets gets to ball. Yeah. Um, and, and this, again, highlighting the ability, which is uh, about uh, breaking through some of the stigma and and uh, again, highlighting uh, these individuals within the within the community. Absolutely, it's breaking down the barriers right. um, that have been set before them or that, that have been put upon them, and we help them identify. Like I can do these things. Yeah, and and that's the other part of it too. How how important is this for the development of the individuals that you that you serve? I mean, what does this mean to them? Well, physically, it keeps them um, in shape, mm-hmm. um, and mentally, it gives them, it lets them know that they can do it. We've we've got two um, athletes that are going with us this year that we've had to modify the walk. Um, one is visually impaired, so we use a guide rope because we're not allowed to walk with her; she mm-hmm. has to do it herself. Okay. Um, and then we have another athlete that also needs um, the rope because of his physical limitations. But they will be competing against other athletes this weekend um, with a device that we created here in Hancock County to help them do that. That is awesome. Uh, and, and it's it's just like any uh, sports uh, or athletic, especially for young people, uh, to give them that real-world confidence uh, in their ability to overcome challenges, do things that they didn't even realize that they could do, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and there's such a social aspect to it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's camaraderie. It's building that team partnership. We're here together, you know, for that common goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we learned through COVID that, you know, people miss those friendships being together. And this is just one one opportunity for people with disabilities that we support where they can come together and continue that social aspect. Is this the uh, the first uh, state uh, games since uh, COVID? Or no, we have had... <laughs> I think this makes our third run third since COVID. Run. Yeah, since COVID. Okay, yes. so I, because I would imagine that was just a huge blow to not. Be yeah, able when to we ask. didn't get to do it, and then yeah. the, as soon as they started to relieve some of the restrictions, we did what mm-hmm. we call a summer reimagined, where we created our own summer games but kept it mm-hmm. safe. Yeah. So then, um, the challenges and stuff we kept trying to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, the uh, torch run is happening tomorrow. When does that all uh, get underway? It, underway at 3 p.m. Okay. So the runners, we're going to start lining up runners around 2.30 at the University of Finley. Okay. And the activities will already start happening at Blanchard Valley Center. <laughs> and then we meet at Blanchard Valley Center. And how big of a celebration is that when the uh, torch arrives? That's uh, Oh, it's that's oh, huge. So it's huge. Yeah. It's it is. all the law enforcement. I think we have State Highway Patrol, Sheriff's, uh, Police Department. University of Finley. Um, security's going to run mm-hmm. um, and then so the Finley running club sometimes will join us yeah. and then the athletes those that can right are trained to run that distance will run with us and so again inviting uh, the entire Inter- community mm-hmm. out to yes. uh, welcome the torch and and send the uh, athletes join off us. yes we have popcorn hot dogs snow cones face painting <laughs> It's going to be a terrific event. <laughs> yeah. We actually have uh, a link on our webpage for uh, more information uh, about the torch run and the celebration and the send-off and, and all of that. Certainly best of luck to uh, all of the athletes uh, participating yeah. in the uh, summer games. And uh, ladies, thanks very much for uh, being with us this morning. We Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Again, goodmornings.net to learn more. So yesterday on the program, we were talking about the difference between leveraging technology versus relying on technology and how the former is good for growing a business while the latter is not. Well, the reality is that between one quarter and one half of the U.S. workforce will be automated by the end of this decade, according to research out of Oxford University. So if you want to be among those who are leveraging smart technology and not one of those being replaced by it, you have to own your work journey. That is the title of the new book by Edward Hess, Professor Emeritus of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business. And first off, Ed, do you buy into that distinction between leveraging technology versus relying on technology and how those two things can have very different outcomes for businesses? Yes, because the the leveraging of technology is, is really using it for particular purposes, but not being dominated by it. Mm-hmm. And 
and also not being controlled by it. Yeah. And, uh, and so the organizations have got to take ownership. I mean, everyone's going to be impacted uh, by what's happening now. I mean, yeah. the age of smart technology is here. Well, all right. And it, it's a game changer. And so really and truly every organization and every human being is going to have to be a highly adaptive learner to learn, unlearn, and relearn at the pace of technological change because it's going to consistently change and improve. And it's interesting, we talk about the number of workers projected to be displaced by this uh, technology. I remember 30 or 40 years ago when robotics started to become commonplace in manufacturing, the warnings that machines were coming for your jobs, and there are still plenty of jobs to be found in manufacturing. This, though, does seem to be different because because of the nature of the technology we are seeing today. That's quite correct. This is smart technology that can do things that we can do that as can human think. beings. Well, it can find information. It can, it can, I'm not going to go as far to say it can think, mm-hmm. but it's hard to figure out yeah. what word to use instead of right. that. All right. Yeah, because exactly. let's just say this, it will be a highly efficient thinker where we human beings are highly inefficient thinkers and that's really the crux of what you're talking about in the book and the goal will be to optimize your thinking in ways that will differentiate you from smart technology and robots so i guess that leads to the basic question how do i think in ways that smart technology can't think and that's the $64,000 question. Now, the answer, is, the answer is easy. Higher order critical thinking, innovative thinking, going into the unknown and figuring things out and making decisions where there's not a lot of data. And the other advantage we humans will have is, is that most work in the future is going to be done with technology and other human beings. Collaboration is a really big thing. And... Us humans have emotions, and emotions are highly critical. And so we have to excel at building caring, trusting, positive emotional relationships with other human beings. Technology is not going to be able to do that and have to have conversations with human beings to collaborate with human beings. And then there's going to be another third type of jobs that's going to be very hard for technology to do, even if it's smart. And that's... Trade jobs that require human dexterity, lots of dexterity, an iterative diagnosis of the problem, an iterative trial and error approaches to solving the problem. Now, the, the thing that's challenging, we're not good thinkers. We're wired to go out in the world and seek confirmation of what we believe, affirmation of our egos, our stories about who we are, mm-hmm. and to keep our stories cohesive. And most of us are what I call suboptimal learners, not highly adaptive learners who can learn, unlearn, and relearn at the speed of change. So we're going to have to take our game to a higher level. We're going to have to become a highly adaptive learner, and that requires us to take ownership of how we think, how we listen, how we relate, how we manage our emotions, and how we learn. And that requires us to take ownership of ourselves Our ego, our mind, our body, our emotions, our behaviors, how you listen, how you learn, how Mm -hmm. you collaborate. That's going to be the difference between the winners and the losers. And from the title of the book, it seems you are suggesting that the onus is on the individual worker to retrain ourselves versus, uh, you know, a company uh, helping to retrain its workers for the uh, opportunities or the positions they will need that cannot be replaced by smart technology. I think that the same thing's going to happen in the whole organization. In other words, the organizations of the future are going to be organizations that are highly adaptive organizations who can learn, unlearn, and relearn. If an organization itself is not taking ownership of this and understanding what technology can do and what it can't do and and basically changing how it does its business – the organization is going to be out of business. So the leadership of the organization has got to put in the daily practices and the tools for people to use 
in order to achieve this result. So it's integrated because, you know, you, the organization, the organization can't say, this is where we want to end up. Mm-hmm. Okay, you go figure out how to do it, yeah. you know, 2,000 people, 100 people, whatever. No, because yeah. the leaders of the organization got to go, the leaders of the organization have to go through the same thing that the employees are going through. Yeah. So uh, in the book, you kind of lay out uh, the, the, the process uh, to do this and to adapt this uh, way of thinking and, the, and this way of learning. What is the, the first step? Kind of give us a, a taste of this. Yeah. Well, the first step is for the individual to understand that I've got to take ownership of what's going on inside of me. And that's very personal. So we got to understand, you know, our ego, how our mind works, how our body works, how our emotions work, and understand, you know, um, how they influence how we behave and how we collaborate with other people. And so the big challenge is, is the in, what's going on inside of us. We have to take ownership and, and say our ego, all right? You can, you can basically say there's two, two types of people, okay? The big ego people and the quiet ego people. Oh, well, the science is overwhelming that the quiet ego people are the people who are going to be the most highly adaptive, the best thinkers, hmm. uh, the best learners, where the big ego people are going to basically, their ego is wrapped up in always they're, looking good, being correct, being right. They're going to struggle with this. And they're going to struggle with this. So the first thing you start out with, we start out with in the book is, is how do I take ownership and basically rewire my ego and humility is the approach that it's, you know, it's not all about me and to understand what the science tells us. We need other people to challenge what we learn and we need to be constantly upgrading ourselves and challenging ourselves. And there is some urgency to this because it's happening now. I mean, we're seeing this technology being uh, leveraged even today uh, in the most forward-thinking businesses, and it's only going to grow from here. Correct. Yeah. And it's going to happen fast. Yeah. That statistic about technology uh, replacing uh, one-fourth to one-half of the U.S. workforce by the end of this decade. I mean, we're almost halfway through this decade. We're a third of the way through the decade already. So uh, certainly some urgency uh, to all of this. The uh, book is called Own Your Work Journey, The Path to Meaningful Work and Happiness in the Age of Smart Technology and Radical Change. Again, uh, Edward Hess is Professor Emeritus of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business. And do you have a website uh, where folks can learn more about the book? Yes, uh, www.ownyourworkjourney.com. Ed Hess, thanks very much for taking the time, giving folks a lot to think about. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me and take care. Well, certainly, if you follow the news, uh, this has been uh, a story that has come up time and time again over the uh, past year or so. The millions of refugees searching for safety and shelter. Um, uh, seeking political asylum, where we're talking about uh, the uh, southern U.S. border coming from uh, Central American company uh, countries or uh, Ukrainian refugees, whatever it might happen to be. Uh, a collaboration between Airbnb.org and the International Organization for Migration is providing resources and solutions to those refugees. And joining us this morning are uh, Kristen Burlocker from uh, Airbnb.org and Amy Pope from the International Organization for Migration. And we thank you both. Amy, let me start with you. Talk about how the state of refugees and asylum seekers has evolved uh you know we've seen these headlines in the news where have you seen the the greatest need currently there are more than a hundred million people who are on the move forcibly displaced by conflict by war by community violence by disasters which have become exacerbated by changing climate And we're seeing this phenomenon all over the world, whether it is in Ukraine or Afghanistan, whether it's people displaced in Somalia or Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. or those in Latin America who've been increasingly displaced by the situation in Venezuela. 
so it, really important, I think, to underscore the fact that this is uh, about more than just the headlines that we see on the evening news. The, this is happening uh, in so many parts of the world. And, and Kristen, why is the, the temporary housing aspect of this uh, such a key part of relief for those refugees? Well, no matter where it occurs, when refugees are forced to flee their homes, one of their most immediate and urgent needs is finding temporary places to stay. So that's why Airbnb.org works with organizations like ILM to provide this short-term stay. And we often partner with hosts who share their space for free or at a discount. And not having to worry about housing, even temporarily, allows refugees to focus on other critical and immediate needs, such as accessing medical care or social services. For example, we had a guest named Alina who fled her home in Odessa with just a backpack after the war broke out in Ukraine. And IOM was able to connect her with an Airbnb.org host who not only opened their home, but also helped with things like groceries and doctor's appointments and really offered her that sense of connection and community, which is just so important for people who have been uprooted from their homes and separated from their families. You know, this has been uh, has become such a, a hot button political issue on on many different levels. But this goes beyond uh, the politics and, you know, to try and kind of strip some of that out, uh, Kristen, this is also a benefit not only to those refugees, those asylum seekers and so on, but for the communities that step up to house them. Absolutely. Helping to welcome newcomers has really helped local communities learn and understand people's circumstances and have a level of empathy that they may not have shared just from reading the headlines. So being able to engage with refugees directly, one-on-one, human-to-human, around a dinner table, hosting them in their homes, that's really kind of fostered a sense of welcome that I think, you know, regardless of politics, it is certainly welcome here in the U.S. Amy, I want to ask, how big of an impact are uh, partnerships uh, like this one between your organization and Airbnb.org? Uh, you know, how, how big of an impact does this have? It's critical, and it's the kind of public-private partnership that we hope to grow. If we take, take the war in Ukraine just as one example, there are 8 million people who are fleeing Ukraine uh, as a result of the war. Within one month after the war breaking out, we had entered into a partnership agreement with Airbnb.org. We were able to provide housing to some of the most vulnerable people who were fleeing the conflict. This was women with young children, elderly people, uh, those who are disabled. And having that level of stability and doing so in a very practical and easy to use way, that, that kind of support is essential. Now, again, uh, we're talking about uh, providing uh, immediate temporary uh, housing for these refugees and asylum seekers. Um What about the long-term needs? I mean, I'm assuming that a partnership like this, uh, Amy, gives you time or buys you time in order to find more permanent solutions. That's right. And, you know, in a situation like the one in Ukraine, for example, there are no signs that the war is going to abate anytime soon. Exactly. So making sure that we can address um, what is prolonged internal displacement, building the support within communities, building um, access to to um, schools or social services. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing is going to be needed well after the issues in the newspaper. Kristen, uh, how do folks uh, learn more about this partnership and support these efforts if they are uh, so inspired to do so? So there's a number of ways to get involved in your own community. You can volunteer with local agencies that are supporting refugees. You can sign up to host refugees on Airbnb.org. But one of the easiest ways to help and to sustain this work um, that, as Amy mentioned, is going to, you know, the needs will far outlast the media headlines is by making donations to Airbnb.org and USA for IOM, which is their nonprofit arm of IOM here in the U.S. 
And right now, Airbnb.org has a matching campaign running where all donations up to a total of $5 million will mm. be matched one-to-one. Mm. We will link those resources up at our website so anyone who is so inclined can learn more. Again, Kristen Burlocker from uh, Airbnb.org, Amy Pope from the International Organization for Migration with us this morning. Thank you both for taking the time this morning talking about some of the uh, relief being provided to these uh, individuals in such great need. We appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Well, you talk about an elaborate ruse to uh, pull on the rest of your family. Check this out. A man in Belgium by the name of David Barten, age 45, decided that he would teach his family a lesson about the importance of staying in touch with each other. And he got a brilliant idea to drive the point home by faking his own death. So... Uh, This is the story. Apparently, he roped his wife and his kids uh, into this scheme. One of his daughters um, posted online about her heartbreak at her father's passing. As the rest of the the family, the wider family, came together at his quote-unquote funeral to pay their respects, Mr. Barten then made a dramatic arrival at his own funeral. Actually came in in a helicopter along with a camera crew, and set about comforting his distraught loved ones. (laughs) What I see in my family often hurts me, he said in in defense of his actions. I never get invited to anything. Nobody sees me. We all grew apart. I felt underappreciated. That's why I wanted to give them a life lesson and show them that you shouldn't wait until someone is dead to get back in touch with the family. Okay, I get it. I mean, I think we've all had that happen when a relative has passed and, you know, the family comes together and you all stand around and say, gee, we need to get together more often and not let it, you know, only be at at times of great grief that we see each other and yada, 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 right? But uh, he even uh, pointed out, David uh, Barten actually pointed out that only half of his family even bothered to turn up for his funeral, which turns out wasn't his funeral anyway. But I'm thinking, you know what? This whole thing could backfire in a massive way. <laughs> because what happens when he really does die? <laughs> I mean, you think only half of his family showed up uh, when they thought he died. When he does die, you'll be lucky to get that many. You know what I mean? So fool me once. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> Apparently, he posted about this on uh, TikTok. Of course, this makes its way to social media, as everything does these days. (laughs) Elsewhere in the uh, broken news, talk about adding insult to injury in Illinois. Mark DeCara, age 62, had a bad dream. He uh, dreamed that a burglar was breaking into his home. And have you ever had one of those real, you know, those dreams that seem so real, you wake up and you don't really know whether it was real or not? So he had this uh, this dream, very vivid dream of a burglar waking, uh, breaking into his home. It was so real that he grabbed his gun and accidentally shot himself. <laughs> wow. Now that's a realistic dream uh, right there. He actually grabbed a gun but didn't shoot the uh, burglar, the supposed burglar. He shot himself. And now, again, talk about adding insult to injury. He has been charged with illegal possession of a firearm and reckless discharge of a firearm. <laughs> Mr. Dakari, according to the police report, was bleeding profusely from his leg when police arrived uh, at his home in Barrington, Illinois, Last month, um, the Lake County Sheriff uh, reported that further investigation revealed uh, that he had a dream someone was breaking into his home. He retrieved his 357 Magnum and shot at who he believed was the intruder. But when he fired, he shot himself. 
Apparently, that's it's it's only after he was shot that he actually woke up from the dream. He was still dreaming <laughs> when he when he shot himself. He has now been charged with illegal possession of a firearm and reckless discharge. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> but nobody was trying to break into his home, so I guess there's good news there. Uh, let's see here. Sheriff's deputies in Louisiana have arrested a 28-year-old woman who enrolled in a local high school claiming to be 17 years old. Is 28, claimed to be 17, enrolled in high school. Both she and her mother now stand accused of causing injury to public or, or injury to public records for falsifying documents claiming that the woman was a teenager. The motive is unknown. But sheriff's deputies, <laughs> in a statement, said, I, I like pizza and tater tot day as much as the next person, but this seems a pretty elaborate plan just to score a cheap lunch. That's weird. <clears throat> a Michigan freeway. Sometimes you don't have to go very far to find the uh, broken news. A Michigan freeway was closed for half a day. After a semi-truck crashed and burned, leaving loads of empty beer kegs strewn across the stretch of westbound I-94 east of Jackson. Uh, When did this happen? It was just a few days ago, I guess. Police had to stop all lanes of traffic as people (laughs) cleaned up the beer kegs. (laughs) I'm guessing they probably got plenty of volunteers. Until they found out that the beer kegs were empty. Um, the 62-year-old driver of the overturned truck was not injured. And uh, traffic was able to uh, get back to normal after about four hours. So, this is weird. Beer kegs all over the highway. Try and explain that to your insurance company right there. Is beer kegs all over the highway. Um, this may be one of the most weird and bizarre stories that we've had uh, this year in the broken news. The manager of the morgue at Harvard Medical School is now under federal indictment for allegedly selling selling stolen body parts. I kid you not, according to the indictment, Cedric Lodge stole parts of dissected cadavers, took them to his home, and then sold the parts Online, Mr. Lodge's wife and two alleged buyers are also charged in the indictment that was released on Wednesday. Here's my question in this whole gruesome story. Is there really a a market on eBay for body parts? Who's going online to buy body parts? I mean, honestly, well, gee, I need a, I need an arm. I'll go to eBay. Who thinks that way? Who thinks, I guess you can, I can sell anything on online. It's weird. And finally, a much uh, brighter story to uh, finish up today's broken news report. A man in North Carolina who lost his high school class ring half a century ago, believe it or not, has now been reunited with it. Um, you think 50 years, uh, you pretty much lost hope of uh, finding the ring ever again. But deputies, this is a guy in, a, in North Carolina, deputies from a West Virginia sheriff's office helped recover and locate the ring's owner. Apparently, the ring was found during an investigation into a... Uh, a copper theft ring. Somehow, the ring got mixed in with all of these other metals that had been stolen. Uh, the initials inside the ring helped law enforcement officials locate potential students who graduated from the high school uh, indicated on the ring. And the man who then uh, the man was reunited with his long lost ring uh, now says he plans to keep it safely on his finger. <laughs> from now on but how crazy is that after 50 years for it still to be around 
first of all, and then to be found in uh, West Virginia, and the uh, deputies took the time to figure out who it belonged to and get it back to its rightful owner. That is, that is crazy. There you go. Uh, that is today's Broken News Report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When you're behind the wheel, it's okay to rock out to your music, but it's not okay to interact with your phone screen and electronic devices while driving. In most cases, anything more than a single touch or swipe is against the law. That means no texting, no typing, no scrolling, no shopping, no browsing. If an officer sees a violation, they can pull you over. So remember, Ohio, phones down. It's the law. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives, and what eyebrow-raising statistics are these. We all know somebody who is in a toxic relationship, right? But it turns out that more people than maybe we realize are in relationships that they would like to apparently get out of. According to recent research that was published in the British newspaper, The Independent, only 17% of couples claim to actually be happy with their current partner. I, that was just mind-boggling to me. That just blew my mind. 17% of couples say they are actually happy with their current partner. Um, furthermore, 25% of people say that they are no longer in love with their spouse. And one-fifth, one in five, 20% of people uh, say they feel trapped in their marriages. Man, I mean, that is just, and then to, not only is that amazing uh, data there, uh, further, experts say that people tend to stay in unhappy or unhealthy relationships because the benefits outweigh the costs. And I thought to myself, Wow. I mean, I, I, I understand that there are a lot of dynamics at play here, but uh, just being unhappy or have fallen out of love or, or whatever it might happen to be and staying because the benefits outweigh the, the negatives. Uh, that just seems like we're incredibly transactional. What does that say about our society today that these relationships are that transactional for so many people? I, the only word that comes to my mind is, Wow. So now to our Throwback Thursday segment this morning with Father's Day right around the corner. Uh, This is the perfect gift for dad that loves cars, as a lot of dads do. But of course, you don't have to be a father to be a gearhead. This is uh, car show season and all of that. We love our classic cars. Anyone who loves the automobile uh, would love this and collectively... In America, we are obsessed with our cars. Uh, back in 2018, DK Publishing and the Smithsonian released a book called Drive, The Definitive History of Driving. And what's interesting about this is it's not just the history of the automobile itself. It is uh, a history of how the automobile has been the catalyst for the evolution of society in so many ways. The author is award-winning automotive writer Giles Chapman, and uh, back in June of 2018, with the release of the book, we talked to him about it. It is today's Throwback Thursday. There is a lot of ground to cover in the 130-some-odd years from the horseless carriage to the autonomous vehicle, and you do your best to, to cover it all. It was quite a journey uh, because uh, the obviously the, the history of the car is you know getting longer by the year, and um, we we had uh, you know a lot of space uh, to work in. But what I what I wanted to do was also make make a book that wasn't just another history of the hardware, you know, just a blow by blow story of the car. This is really about the car and us, um, and if not you and I, then our, our parents and grandparents. And it's about how it's you know, shape the world around us and, uh, you know, all the benefits and sometimes, um, uh, you know, downsides that it's given. So um, it was an interesting job to do because, uh, you know, I've never really been able to uh, to have the space to do this kind of thing before. And I was lucky enough to have uh, 
quite a good team of writers with me as well who were who were you know we were very good at looking at specific areas of the world and making sure that it was authentic. What, in your mind, is the most significant constant uh, over the course of those 130 years? Again, from the very earliest vehicles to the most advanced vehicles uh, that we have now. What is the biggest constant over that century plus? Well, that's, well, that's, that's a very, uh, very good, very good question indeed. I mean, I think uh, I think that the, the biggest constant probably is from. Uh, around 1910 to perhaps the turn of the century, the year 2000, and that is, I think, in all that time, the car has been an instrument of freedom. It's, you know, it's taken you where you want to go, when you want to go, mm-hmm. at the speed you want to go, um, and you know, largely in the style to which you would either like to uh, travel or the best that you can afford. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, and that's and that's what I was. And that's what I was thinking. The you know, it's it's kind of a status symbol in one way, shape, or form, and it's always yeah. been that from the very early days when only the rich could afford it to yeah. these days when the type of you car you drive really defines the type of person you are. Yeah, well, you know, that is a very interesting uh, uh, subject you bring up there because uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. My son is is, is sixteen, and I wonder whether. Uh, him as a young man is going to be infatuated with cars the way I was, mm-hmm. uh, because you know the, uh, the the world is quite different now. I mean, you know, we were talking a minute ago about freedom. I think for many of us as as car owners these days, uh, in, in a way, it's very much about restriction. Uh, you know, we used to be able to do these these epic journeys <laughs> across our across our countries at mm-hmm. sort of you know uh, uh, warp speed really, and now you know obviously you're going to get photographed and punished severely if you break any any uh, um, speed limits. You're, you're taxed if your car produces a lot of uh, pollution, and uh, you are um, uh, kind of you know there's nowhere to park. This is this is the other thing. Yeah. And where there are places, yeah. certainly in a uh, you know I'm. I'm today from London, you have to pay everywhere here. It's a nightmare. Uh, so perhaps that's not quite the same in, in the States. But, you know, it's, it's tightened. The, the restrictions have tightened quite a lot. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, I hope that, that young people will find cars as, as, as interesting as infatu- you know, yeah. infatuating as I have. Yeah, well, one, I think they'll probably view it slightly differently. You know what I mean? Yeah, one of the one of the things that I think is interesting over the years, cars are kind of a, a microcosm of technology. They've always been about you know uh, cutting edge technology, yeah. but now more than yeah. ever, especially uh, putting that technology in front of the driver instead of just hidden under the hood. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, you know, cars are very very. Um, computerized and digital and that, that is a that is a trend started by Volkswagen in nineteen sixty eight and really you know it, it gained a lot of momentum in the nineteen eighties when ECUs, elect, electrical control units, started mm-hmm. to do a lot of the jobs around the car that previously the driver had done. And by which I mean um, you know, getting the petrol and air mixture right so that the engine runs smoothly. You know, that used to be something that the driver had quite a bit of control over. <laughs> Yeah. Um, didn't always do a great job, it should be said. Um, and you know that job has been you know taken over by a system uh, bit by bit. So so you know now our cars, we don't need to even look at a map before we set out somewhere <laughs> we've never been before. Yeah. Because we've got well, satellite navigation, it's going to do it for you. You know why why waste your time? Uh, and you know it, it seems like the, the the internal combustion engine is like the last man standing in the car of the old days. <laughs> yeah. The that's, dirty you know noisy thing that sort of it's just waiting really to be replaced by an electric motor. That is a um, good point. After, you know, once that happens, you, you're even less connected somehow to, yeah. the, to the car itself. Well, so, um, you know, it's a period of change. And, and you talk about uh, the fact that we don't even have to look at a map anymore. The car tells us where uh, to go, and that's really kind of yeah. an interesting thing, too. In the book, you talk about more than just the vehicle itself, but the whole uh, experience and all the things that the automobile yes. has given us uh, from auto Auto racing to traffic lights yeah. to car washes. Well, you know, I think I think what what cars have also done is they they they've enabled uh, you know an, an environment to be built that just didn't exist before to service them. And uh, the uh, you know the, the the way America changed with 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 uh, mass car ownership is is quite incredible. When you look at the time scale, you know, really between I would say 1920 and 1950, the road network 
network was built. In 1900, there were only 10% made roads in the US. Isn't yeah. that incredible to think of that, that they were just dirt tracks mostly? And then, you know, you've got diners and motels and gas stations and all this stuff is put in place in a very short period of time to cater for this, you know, some would say monster that uh, comes along and, uh, you know, really re- reshapes the world we live in. And, um, you know, I, and I think on that basis, we also tend to look at a lot of the, you know, we don't, we don't tend to even look at stuff around us and, and question where it comes from, you know, from the convenience features in the car, everything from heated seats to, you know, um, in-car MP3 players. I mean, we very quickly get used to this stuff. It's just like computers, isn't it? You know, you, you, you're given so many toys and, and gizmos that you... Something that was amazing a year ago doesn't even figure anymore. Yeah, it, it, it really is. What I love about this is it is a, a, an incredibly uh, it's an incredible digest of uh, the the glamour, the uh, design, uh, which yeah. obviously you can't talk about vehicles without talking about uh, the design of them over the years. How, as you say, the automobile yeah. has really shaped the modern world. It is called Drive: The Definitive History of Driving. Uh, Giles Chapman is the uh, author, and uh, there is more uh, information about the book online, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's available in, in good at, at bookshops and, and um, also on, on Amazon and other, other retailers. So it's, uh, we, we, we've, done a, we've done an edition specifically for the U.S. I mean, I'm talking to you from London. We've got a British one as well. So, uh, you know, and I had some very good writers, including a, a great expert from um, Detroit who helped me with, with, you know, make sure that all the U.S sort of uh, uh, kind of feeling in the book is, is, is authentic and I hope, I hope that's what people find. From June of 2018 our conversation with automotive writer Giles Chapman about his book Drive The Definitive History of Driving. It is our Throwback Thursday segment this morning and by the way we have a link on our webpage goodmornings.net if you want to pick up the book. And that will put the wraps on our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And once again, remember, you can get more information on all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage. Again, goodmornings.net is our little corner of the World Wide Web. So check us out online. Coming up tomorrow on the program, could Ohio become the permanent home of the U.S. Space Command? Senator Sherrod Brown among those making the pitch this week. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.